Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, our Minister's Conference here at the Institute for Government. Uh, this afternoon's panel is one of the ones that I've been particularly looking forward to. Um, we're going to hear from people who have done Ministers Reflect-style interviews with ministers in different governments around Europe and hear what they've learned about how those governments work and how they can compare. Uh, we've got people who've done interviews in the devolved nations in the UK, uh, in the Netherlands, joining us from over the North Sea, and Georgia, joining us in person. Thank you again for coming in. Uh, and I think the range of governments that we're going to discuss uh, will allow for some really interesting comparisons and discussions. Um, in the UK, we tend to think about, well, what's Australia doing, and maybe New Zealand, um, Canada. So to hear from the Netherlands and Georgia uh, is, is a, a bit of a treat, and I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of think about what is similar and what is different between our governments and those, um, uh, those other European countries. Um, but also, one of the failings of Westminster is that not many people here think about how things work across the rest of the UK. So it is, uh, you know, we were very happy to expand our Ministers Reflect archive to ministers from Cardiff, Edinburgh and Belfast. And there are, of course, many similarities between the devolved governments and uh, the UK level. But there are also things that uh, Westminster can learn from those capitals. So it's going to be interesting to draw that comparison in as well. Uh, and like the previous session, I'm also quite keen to talk about what's it actually like to kind of the, the, the mechanics of Ministers Reflect. How do these interviews work? How easy is it to get people to take part? How open are they? And what do they think their interviews are being used for? Um, so we have a fantastic panel to talk about this. As I mentioned, joining us from, uh, I believe, The Hague, Casper. Uh, we have Professor Casper von den Berg, or you? Uh, yeah, no, I'm in the north of the Netherlands, uh, in uh, Leeuwarden at the moment. Leeuwarden, well, thank you very much. Casper uh, is the Chair in Global and Local Governance at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, um, and he is also a member of the Dutch Senate. Uh, he has worked on the, a project there called De Top Kijkt Om, which means the top looks back, a project from the Dutch Interior Ministry which interviews former ministers and civil servants to explore their experience of government. Also joined by Dr. Hans Goodbrod, Professor of Public Policy at Ilya State University in Georgia. And since 2020, Hans has worked on a series of Ministers Reflect interviews for Civil Georgia, which is a news website and think tank run by the United Nations Association of Georgia. And then my colleagues, Akash Pound, Programme Director of the Institute, who leads our work on devolution, overseeing work on the State of the Union and devolution to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, as well as English cities and regions. And Dr. Catherine Haddon, Programme Director of the IFG Academy and leader of a lot of our work on ministers. Kath has also done a lot of Ministers Reflect interviews. So, uh, if I can start with Hans, and then I'll come to you, Casper, with the same question. Hans, could you tell us a bit more about your Ministers Reflect project in Georgia? How did you get started, and what are some of the key things you found? Yeah, well, thank you. So, I mean, you know, every country is, is of interest to itself, but maybe something that's of broader interest in Georgia is that when I first came there in 1999, towards the end of finishing my PhD at the LSE here, it was practically a failing state. And not so long thereafter, it became a very successful reformer. And the lights started going on again, and the police wasn't shaking you down, and uh, the, the success was also reflected in whatever their limitations are, lots of international ratings and rankings, street-level corruption, practically zero. Now, the what of that story, of these reforms, that's been written up relatively well. Uh, I think I had a good view of that. I was running a... a research institute uh, the, that was doing a lot of polling in the area from 2006 to 2013 across the entire region. But I felt that the how 
of these reforms, how these ministers and deputy ministers actually uh, were implementing these reforms, often with incredible speed, often with, without a proper civil service, uh, service at their dis disposal, that that was particularly interesting. Now, Ministers Reflect was a part of my engagement with that story. Of course, I've been around. I'm, I'm writing about that. I'm looking at that in a larger arc. But I felt that the model that you put into place in some ways was like struts. Uh, you, you, you could put that into the story, and partially because you have had a comparable model, and also because you could actually go to former ministers and deputy ministers and say, see, this is what we're just transferring across. It was a way of reassuring them. And so that, in a way, this was, you know, I do think of this as a great, even without following day-to-day -day UK politics, I do read the things with a lot of interest, but I think it's also in radically different contexts where you often have things going on that are in some ways rather dissimilar, it still can be a great model. Absolutely, and um, I'm really looking forward to getting into some of those similarities and differences. So, Casper, if I can come to you, can you tell us, yeah, how did you get started um, in, in the Netherlands with this project and what were you hoping to achieve? Yeah, so basically the uh, story of our version of Ministers Reflect the Top Kijkt On goes back to uh, 2017, 2018, when one of our colleagues, uh, his name is Roel Becker, who, was, who used to be a permanent secretary in the Central Civil Service, and later on also a professor at Leiden University, and who has a big, uh, um, who has a big uh, appreciation of of uh, the Institute for Government in general, and particularly on Ministers Reflect. He actually pitched the idea with a couple of people in the Netherlands of, uh, uh, can't we do this also uh, in the Netherlands, knowing that, um, uh, for instance, we have a relatively poorly developed tradition uh, on, on memoir writing for, uh, for political leaders. Uh, and just the idea of documenting what it takes to be effective, documenting um, what your work week looks like, how you navigate uh, in your interactions with parliament, in your interactions with fellow ministers, with the field, etc. Uh, to be able to document that and to make that publicly uh, accessible was a desire that um, Ruhl Becker and the people around him had at that time. And this is how we um, uh, got started, basically, with the support of the Ministry of, uh, of Home Affairs, who was facilitating this, and then a team of interviewers coming from different universities, some political historians, some public administration uh, professors. And we just uh, uh, started uh, uh, with the first run in 2018. Then uh, uh, we did a series of uh, about 20 interviews, uh, some with ministers, others with uh, uh, former senior civil servants, mostly uh, permanent secretaries. And um, that was interrupted a little bit by, uh, uh, by COVID, but we ended that first series of 20 interviews by 2020. Uh, 2020-2021, and um, uh, we published a book on this. We had uh, all the interviews, the clippings on the website, and uh, uh, that was a big uh, success, so much that we are now doing a second run with, again, 20 interviews, slightly different target group. I can tell a bit more about that. But generally, uh, this has become a, a very well-received project that uh, both uh, journalists, the general public, uh, students, uh, researchers are using as a source to, um, uh, to learn and to understand what, uh, what the job is like. 
Thank you very much. Um, Akash, you run our devolution project program here. Um, tell us how the devolved ministers reflect fits in with our work more broadly. Sure, thanks, Tim. So um, this is uh, something we, we started uh, back in 2018 or so, but the seed was actually planted by uh, Leighton Andrews, who was here on the panel earlier. I remember he, I know he's left now, but he wrote a, a blog or, or some kind of article uh, very, saying very complimentary things about the Ministers Reflect project um, and saying, oh, I wish someone would do something similar for, for Wales and, and, and by extension the other devolved nations. So, so that's where I remember first thinking, oh yeah, that's a kind of obvious thing for us to do. Um, and then the idea did come up um, internally as well. Um, and it was suggested that we, we do start a kind of spin-off project um, initially just focused on the, the very few kind of uh, interviews with, uh, with former first ministers. So we were going to aim for something quite small and limited um, at the outset. And in fact, the, the folder on our Institute for Government shared project drive is still called First Ministers Reflect, which reflects where we started. But then I think once we, got, once we did get started, um, well, first of all, we just found it very interesting and, and we kind of uh, built up momentum and, and expanded it quite rapidly. And we also recognised, for instance, that so many of the governments had been coalitions, so we wanted to speak to other party leaders, deputy first ministers, and then we went from there. So um, in the end, we studied, uh, we, we conducted um, 15 interviews in uh, a first wave we did in 2018-19 across primarily Scotland, Wales, couple in Northern Ireland. We published a report on the back of that called Ministers Reflect on Devolution, and that was published in 2019, and it was part of a wider set of activities we did looking at the first 20 years of devolution to those nations and how it had worked and uh, where how the settlements might evolve. Uh, we then went back and did a second wave of interviews in 2021-22 in when Brexit was quite fresh in mind. So that was a big theme of, of a lot of those conversations um, and, and, and COVID as well. Um, so yeah, in total, we've done 24, quite a good spread across the three countries um, in question and a good spread of, of parties as well. I mean, we've covered eight different parties plus an independent minister. Um, that's almost every party that's ever been in power in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast. We've never managed to get a DUP person. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but yeah, it's been a really interesting project. And I think just, just, just very quickly, I mean, we've covered a lot of similar themes to the UK Ministers Reflect um, interviews, um, but also some, I think, quite interesting, distinctive elements of being a minister at the devolved level, things like coalition and minority government being the norm, the ex expectation rather than the exception, and, and, and how that affected how people conceived of their jobs and formed governments and operated once in government. The fact that these were new institutions in 1999, of course, but even over the period since then, quite frequently taking on new functions, needing to build up capacity, needing to create new departments and agencies, as well as to create a whole new culture of governing that, that didn't necessarily exist before. Um, so that's a really fascinating theme, I think. And then also the ever-present need to 
to negotiate and, and work with and, and often secure the, the agreement or consent of central government for things you might want to achieve, and particularly the dependence on central government funding. Um, so that's what we call governing in the shadow of, of Westminster. So yeah, keen to get into all of that stuff. Brilliant, thank you. And Kath, just final sort of opening question, as we mentioned at the beginning, I don't think it's unfair to say that the UK is not very good at learning from other countries. Do, what do you think the benefits are of kind of comparing between different systems of government? And what uh, it's, it's hugely valuable because, I mean, in a sense, all governments are trying to do the same things, you know, that they're uh, representing their publics and providing services, different levels of services uh, to them. And the kinds of issues around decision making, uh, by and large, some kind of relationship between a political class and official class or at least... Uh, delivery and sort of decision makers, all of these sorts of tensions, they play out in different ways, but they're ever present. And um, I think, you know, the Minister's Reflects approach, I have to say, it's heartwarming to see all the different ways in which it is now being used. And uh, certainly something I can remember actually sitting in the room next door when we were first planning it and thinking about it with our former director, Peter Riddle, who was here earlier and the discussions about how we would use it, how we would structure it, how academics might use it. Coming from a, an academic background myself, uh, I was sort of advising on some of the approaches that we could take to it. And it was always supposed to be something that was about the cumulative weight of these interviews. It's not just one in isolation. We were never trying to do uh, sort of pure oral history where we were just trying to do some kind of journalistic telling the story or getting the juicy gossip. It was always a sort of semi-structured thematic approach to get under the skin of government, and particularly, which is what you and I have found it so useful, to get ministers' own words talking about the kinds of issues that the Institute for Government then tries to help improve in government, because it is much easier to talk to both ministers and officials about the kinds of issues that come up in Ministers Reflect when you're using ministers' own words rather than you know, telling them what you think about the way in which they've operated. And it's incredibly powerful that way. Um, so, and that's why actually the more ways that we can point to how it's the same issue in, in other countries, yeah. uh, the more valuable it is to all of this, because you start to explain to people that it is universal. And because, and I think, you know, this came out in the, the session earlier on with Chloe Smith, Governments are often looking internationally. Once yep. she was talking about wanting to both look historically in uh, decision-making and also looking laterally about what other countries are doing. So the, the better that you can inform uh, that decision-making through how others have done it in the past in your own country or in other countries, the better. Brilliant. So let's get into some of those comparisons. Um, one of the things that comes up in our interviews a lot is the feeling of kind of being overwhelmed on entering office. It goes back to what Chloe was talking about earlier about sort of not necessarily knowing what the role actually entails, kind of taking time to get up to speed with that. And I'd be interested to hear what that looks like over in, in these other governments. So perhaps if we go to Casper first this time, um, in, in the Dutch system, how do ministers feel, what, how do they describe their first experience of entering office and, and how do they learn about the job? Yeah, to me, it was very recognizable to read that this is a recurrent theme in the UK uh, interviews because uh, uh, so it is in the uh, uh, in the Dutch interviews. We we uh, oftentimes start the interview. Uh, how do you become a minister? And then some people start to talk about their their professional path to this role, uh, and then we zoom into 
okay, who did you get a phone call from? How did you know you were you were on a specific list of people that could be approached? Uh, was there and did you know what kind of portfolio you were going for when you were approached, or was it very last minute? And those are very uh, uh, insightful answers that you get because this never ends up in the in the newspaper. You also learn how random or how accidental some things uh, uh, happen. And then, of course, um, uh, there is uh, uh, people are um, are flattered that they are asked. They don't know what they uh, are starting into. The first day they get into the department, uh, who is receiving them, who is getting them up to speed, what were their first impressions, uh, and how uh, and 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 how did that uh, uh, develop later on? But also, uh, so the, so that's kind of the general answer here. But also, we noticed quite an interesting pattern of people who were uh, maybe had some parliamentary experience before becoming a minister uh, or people who came from um, a specific substantive uh, field or uh, uh, or uh, some other sort of uh, societal role that they were playing. So um, uh, I really liked what was said just now, that it's not so much about the interviews uh, individually, but about the accumulative knowledge that you, uh, uh, that you get in sort of the different pathways ways to becoming a minister and also the different levels of, of feeling overwhelmed or knowing what to do um, uh, those kind of uh, those kind of things were striking to us and also how people look um, at what their mandate or their job really is so to say uh, because in the Netherlands it's the case that uh, after elections the winning parties come together and negotiate a uh, what we call a coalition agreement which has a chapter for each ministerial department, for each policy sector. And uh, uh, some take that very seriously and see that as sort of the two or three pages of bullets that they need to um, uh, realize or, or, or um, uh, turn, into, uh, turn into policies, turn into reality in their term. And others were interpreting that much more um, in a much more impressionistic uh, way, so to say, and saying, okay, this came out of that, but it wasn't high on my own list, or uh, this was something that nobody really, that, that nobody really expected me to follow up on, uh, so to say. So there were very interesting contrasts, and the more interviews we do, the more we are able to try and see patterns there of what makes the difference of how you uh, look at those things or how you start uh, uh, start the job. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Hans, what about in Georgia? How do people learn about getting the job and how do they start it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question to start the interview with. And uh, the uh, you also realize, also following this discussion, what a particularly unusual species, at least from my perspective, British politicians are. Because <laughs> the way that they have been selected means they are very unusually articulate. Uh, they obviously have been selected in their constituency and then uh, by their party, and then they needed to win, win the votes as well, and then somehow get from the back benches to, to where they are right now. That's not the reality of ministers in lots of other places. And so some, uh, some people that we had talked to were technocrats who had worked their way up a ministry and then they become, were maybe deputy minister, and then they become minister, and something very important changes. They say, previously they spent 70% of their time inside the building, now they spend 70% of their time outside the building. But it's still, that's a kind of, kind of big shift, even if they've been kind of accustomed to suddenly be at the cabinet level. 
Others, one person we talked to uh, said uh, she was the first female deputy minister of defense, said uh, that she always had to balance about, she had come from the NGO sector, Transparency International, then being in probably one of the least transparent ministries uh, to start out with, and said that she had to balance about how many questions she would ask because she didn't want to look too stupid. I mean, there was a concession that you needed to ask questions in the beginning to get going, but uh, so I think almost invariably it ends up being, however the context shifts are, it ends up cognitively being the right question because for the people that you talk to, they often are in very, very different contexts and you really have to put them back into the time and place yeah. mm. so that they can actually tell you the arc. So that's, I yeah. felt that that structure was very transferable. Absolutely, thank you. And Akash, in the devolved ones, I mean, what's the themes of entering governments there? As you mentioned, they're often coalitions, so I guess that's part of the formation process. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what, one of the distinct things I think about the ministers collectively at, at the devolved level is, is how many of them came in straight to cabinet positions with very little or no government experience. In some cases, at the beginning of devolution, no even parliamentary experience, because you were forming a government straight after a, 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 an initial election for a brand new institution. So you had people like Jack McConnell, who we spoke to very soon, within two years, was first minister after um, the death of the initial first minister and then resignation of the second one. Um, he was he was in cabinet in a big important role. Yeah, within within um, weeks of, of being elected for the first time, mm. and then you had parties: the SNP from two thousand seven, Plaid Cymru in Wales, the Liberal Democrats in coalition in both mm. Scotland and Wales, who'd who'd not been in government ever before in mm. most of those cases. So the entire um, political class, to, to, to some extent, was was being created um, from scratch, which clearly was, you know, to some extent challenging for, for, for some of those individuals, but also I think to, in some cases created an opportunity for uh, attempts to, to develop a new kind of policy-making culture. I mean, we heard quite a lot. We, we spoke to quite a few of the SNP ministers, for instance, um, some of the people in Northern Ireland as well, actually, about attempts to create a much more collective, collaborative approach to, to government rather than being stuck in traditional departmental silos. So I think there was that space for experimentation a little bit in governance style. Also, just, just finally, at the start of devolution, although, as I say, a lot of them were inexperienced, there were then some who'd come straight across from being ministers in Westminster, notably including the first first ministers of both Scotland and Wales, who were the secretaries of state beforehand. And with those individuals, I think they faced a different kind of challenge in, for instance, adapting to being in coalition suddenly, mm. not just the secretary of state of a department, we heard, um, and also not being part of a labor movement led by the prime minister. So this is what we heard from well, other people commenting on them, rather than um, the individuals themselves. But um, that there was maybe that generational change needed to happen to some extent before the, the, the Labour Party in both cases was um, kind of ready to, to act as, a, as, a, as an independent entity from, yeah. from the Labour government yeah. in London. Any reflections, Kath? Yeah, I mean, loads. Um, I, I loved Han's point about the, the sort of opening questions that you do in ours is deliberately structured in that way because mm. my favourite moment when I'm ever doing one of these interviews is you, you sort of doing all the preamble and 
uh, discussion and so forth, and they say, well, I can't remember anything, so I don't know how this is going to go. And then you just say, can you remember when you first mm -hmm. got the phone call? And then suddenly it sort of clicks in, mm -hmm. and then they start telling you stories. <laughs> and because we then take them through largely chronologically, yeah. it just really helps the sort yeah. of the memory process because you're able mm -hmm. to sort of prompt them. We have a few times encountered that our research, dare I say it, Wikipedia turned out to be wrong about the particular dates they were in or the role they were in or, or something like that, mm -hmm. usually when it was some kind of complicated dual um, ministerial role or some title that was, that was very confusing. But it really is an interesting process and seeing mm -hmm. how, how memories um, go because we always have to take a pinch of salt of, you know, they are... We try and do the interviews at such a time. It's like they've been out for a bit, so it, it's not... They're not just trying to still fight the same battles that they were when they were just in office. They've had that time to reflect. It's in clues in the title. Um, but at the same time, not so far out that they're then just into memoir mode and they're sort of not really thinking. Although we did then go back and do a load from uh, the Labour government pre... Mm. 2010, which did mean a slightly different approach and a, um, of, of thinking about how they would be reacting to that. So that was one. I mean, another point when Akash first started doing um, his interviews, it, it was really interesting from our point of view of just being able to make the case that this wasn't just us wanting to compare how devolved ministers um, are different from UK ministers. This was also us wanting to make the case that UK ministers could also work from devolves because the experience there was very different because partly sometimes it was forming governments in very different contexts, mm. uh, you know, different distribution of the kind of services you're, you're delivering um, and, and so forth and very different political environments. And it is worth remembering back in 2010, this slightly came up earlier in the panel I was chairing, um, as well as the civil service, the Conservatives went into that um, election or the immediate aftermath of it, having done very little thinking about what would it mean to go into a coalition and therefore what would that mean to your policies. And it was Oliver Letwin who had to do this massive amount of work to sort of think through the Conservative manifesto and, you know, where are our red lines and so forth. Whereas the Liberal Democrats, because they had that experience, were able to sort of draw on and look at um, uh, that experience of, of coalition, of, of different kinds of, of, of governing when you've got no majority. Uh, and, and so we're putting themselves in a very strong position. So the, the Minister's Reflect stuff slightly echoes that as well. Can I, I just want to come in on coalition because it's kind yeah. of come up a couple of times. Mm. And obviously the UK is fairly unusual, perhaps in, what, in the context we're talking about, in that coalition is not the norm here. But actually the coalition government... the Conservative Lib Dem coalition government from 2010 to 2015, the ministers we spoke to say it was actually, it worked really well, it was stable, there was a sense of agreement. Casper, mm. you mentioned the, the Dutch coalition agreements that each government comes up with. The UK sim did a similar arrangement in 2010, which was unusual. And I wonder for, well, panel, open question to the whole panel, but what, what are the kind of tricks and tips that people talk about in terms of that cross-party working that have been particularly successful? Um, I don't know if you've got I, thoughts on that, Kath, and then I'll go around. I do. I just want to do my favourite fact that I realised a few weeks back, and I love telling it, which is that the UK government, despite us saying it had, it's not, doesn't, you know, coalition isn't a norm, the last time we had single party <coughs> majority government, one full parliament under one prime minister, was 2001 to 2005. That's how long it's been 
So we've had all sorts of governments since then. Mm. So actually, the UK government should be prepared for working in lots of different Absolutely. ways. It has been a long while. But I mean, Akash, you wrote so many reports about coalition governments, uh, so you can probably talk better than me about that. But it, it really did come out of it, the way yeah. different ministers were working together, the machinery that they put <clears> into place that actually dare I say it, single party governments of recent years could have done with a bit more structured machinery to resolve in issues rather than just having a big superhero bum fight is the phrase of the week uh, in number 10 about it. So yeah, I wish they'd learn more of it. Casper, <laughs> if I can come to you next. I mean, yeah, in the Netherlands coalition is the norm. How, how does it work there in terms of managing any potential disagreements between what are often sort of three or even four party coalitions? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, question because, indeed, uh, I wouldn't even say it's the norm in the Netherlands. It's it's all we know, right? Uh, uh, we we haven't had a, a single party majority government uh, uh, ever, so it's also difficult to, uh, without that variation to to try and assess the impact of of working in coalition uh, governments. But what we do um, what we do see over the past two decades where most of our interviews were taken from is that there, uh, the way in which the different coalition parties work together is just an integral part of the um, of the work of ministers, right? So in our interviews, we talk about your relations, your interaction with parliament, your relations, your interaction with, with uh, uh, the media, uh, with your own, with this uh, civil service in your own department, and then how to work together within a specific coalition constellation is also one of the key topics that we um, uh, that we discuss. And in every government, that has been a different type of dynamic, different levels of trust, different um, levels of stability between those parties, and also how that is structurally organized. If uh, if that if that happens throughout the week, if conflicts are resolved in the cabinet meetings on Friday morning. We've had a cabinet um, between um, uh, 2017 and uh, 2021 where there were specific uh, coalition council meetings uh, on Monday mornings where basically most of the uh, contentious points were ironed out so that uh, in the cabinet meetings on Friday, it will be more, much more like a sort of procedural type of uh, um, hammering off uh, things. So that has really played a role in there. We see differences within the uh, across the interviews that we've done. And also what is a big um, factor here, even though we've had coalition systems, all uh, coalition governments all along, we do see a larger party political fragmentation in the Netherlands and also larger differences between those parties who together hold a majority in our House of Representatives uh, can no longer be secured that that is also reflected in the composition of the Senate. So uh, the composition of the Senate, the, our, our uh, two chambers of parliament has uh, diverged over the past years very much. And that also has given a very different dynamic in how um, and how ministers are able to get uh, new legislation passed in both, both uh, houses. Brilliant, thank you. Hans, what about in the Georgian context? How does cross-party working work there? 
Well, that's a very good question. There, there isn't any cross-party work. And I mean, it, it, it shows that the differences also that even systems that from the outside look like parliamentary systems often just aren't. And governance is essentially made from the executive top down. You could also call it authoritarian in various ways. And so parliament actually doesn't really figure very much at all. Uh, with the people that we talk to. And as, as we had discussed, one of, the, one of the things that does figure are international partners. Mm -hmm. So if you were in the security sector, then uh, NATO was very important because they really cared about civilian control and approximating NATO in the EU for a lot of regulatory things from agriculture to telecommunications and market regulation in general, and then for monetary and fiscal policy, it's the IMF. And so those are... Um, it often end up being partners of reform. You can tell a nuanced and kind of, I think, faceted story of how that's sometimes complicated, but you, you can certainly also look at how some of the deficiencies in actual bottom-up democratic mm -hmm. culture and something that comes out very strongly in your interviews about still reconciling with the constituency office and the calendar and all of these things, none of these issues at all turn up with the people that we talk to. But again, it, I think it gives us the nuance of, yeah. of governance. Absolutely, brilliant. Uh, Akash, any reflections on, on coalition and indeed international stuff? And then I'm gonna come to the audience for questions. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there's Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are, you know, all have their own differences, of course, in terms of, of, of structure and, and party system and so on. But yeah, in all of them, of course, there's a, a proportional electoral system of some kind. And, and the expectation from the start was that you wouldn't see single party majorities. In the event, we have occasionally had a majority SNP government uh, for a period. Labour won exactly 50% of seats in, in the, the Welsh Parliament, as is now. Uh, a couple of times um, in between there's been coalitions there's been minorities there's been kind of looser cooperation agreements as well so it's been quite a diversity of experience um, and I think I mean there's all sorts of lessons I think come through from from the interviews but I mean just to pick out a couple of interesting ones that were then I think relevant very much to the the UK Westminster coalition um, and indeed, some of the same individuals were, were involved. So Jim Wallace, who was Deputy First Minister in Scotland, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, later on a minister under the Cameron Clegg coalition. Um, his interview is very interesting on this stuff. I mean, one of the things they kind of worked through quite soon or quite early on in the coalition, he told us, was how you deal with divisions between or disagreement between the parties and, and how much that matters. And one of the, one of the things he talked to us about was um, which is a distinct thing about devolved government, actually, that doesn't necessarily apply so much at Westminster, is there was space for the coalition parties in Scotland and, and Wales to take different positions on quite big, important things, like in his case, the Iraq war, mm. um, but that, of course, weren't anything to do with devolved responsibilities. So it didn't affect collective responsibility at the devolved level. Likewise, Kirsty Williams, leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, talked about the same thing, like they absolutely abided by collective responsibility as far as devolved policy issues and competence was concerned. But when it came to Brexit, she very much took a much uh, a harder anti-Brexit line than the Welsh Labour Party, which she was in, in coalition with. So that was quite an interesting um, mm -hmm. dynamic there. Um, I mean, Jim Wallace also talked about 
the civil service struggling with that initially and for example in parliamentary debates on things like foreign policy their kind of starting expectation was well there needs to be a minister representing the executive view on this debate which was you know not a legislative vote or anything just an opposition day debate or something and he had to make the argument that no this is not a coalition issue there's no collective position on this we're representing our party not not a government line so i think that was that was quite interesting um there's lots more i could talk about but well I'll leave it, I'll let's leave get it into it with questions thank you so as ever we have our roving mic uh please put up your hand say where you're from and your name and we'll do a few questions in the room and then go online so lady here Juliet from the Home Office. So my question is, a common critique of the Whitehall departmental system is that it's very siloed and there's not enough um, emphasis on joining up, on delivering cross-cutting priorities like levelling up or net zero. So is there an example of a civil service system around the world that is really good at working together in a joined up way that is um, potentially more functional than our Whitehall system? That's a great IFG question. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, here. Rasika from DLAC. Thank you for raising that point about working together. That's what we've been aspiring to do for a while now, uh, at least in my side of the house. Uh, but then my question here is, uh, you know, working together, one white hall approach is, is very ideal, but Different departments have different priorities and different timescales. Like DLUC, we have a different timescale. We have a different parlance for things. Home office do take their time because they need to because of the nature of their work. But this is just one example, and I'm sure people can give several others across departments. So when this is the case and there's a genuine predicament, how do you manage to achieve this working together? Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, any other questions here? Any um, other departments want to? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Kit Brown from the Department of Health and Social Care. There we go, I won't yes. comment on that one specifically. <laughs> uh, although I probably should do, but uh, yeah, I'll leave that one and ask my own question, which is probably for Akash mostly. But um, uh, I was interested in the interviews that you've carried out with devolved government ministers. Um, you mentioned that they have a lack of prior ministerial experience compared to their UK ministerial counterparts. I wondered if um, from that you've sort of identified any obvious sort of barriers to the role that they find themselves in, or if they themselves have identified any barriers to that role as being a minister. Um, and then beyond that, I sort of building on that, are there any subsequent uh, apparent differences as a result of the interviews that you've carried out between those devolved government counterparts and their sort of UK ministers? Thank you very much. So perhaps if we work backwards, specific, uh, the specific question about the devolved governments um, and how they work with the UK, but also, yeah, their lack of experience beforehand, does that create barriers? And then yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I did first want to pick up on the question about cross-cutting working and, yeah, working across departmental silos, because I referred to it before. I mean, that was a, there was a big attempt to work in a, a different way um, after 2007 in Scotland, the incoming uh, SNP administration, which was a minority, had nowhere near a majority and no natural allies except two green MSPs. So knew from the outset it wouldn't be able to do much in terms of legislation and wasn't going to be able to get anywhere with independence or constitutional stuff either. So they really tried to focus on, on outcomes and, and you know, operating, uh, running public services more effectively 
um, including yeah across traditional uh, departmental silos. So there was the whole sort of outcomes-based accountability framework <laughs> put in place, cabinet committees uh, overseeing it uh, to, to try and join up things like health and justice um, and and um, uh, and other functions, for example. And yeah, we do we did we did talk to a few ministers about that. I mean, Shona Robinson, for example. Um, there's uh, specifics in the interview if people are interested, but sh she felt that there was quite a lot of progress, um, yeah, in sort of joining up between mental health provision and the justice system. So a lot of people going into the into prisons or involved in crime had mental health problems. So by working together, they, they were able to improve outcomes. Um, Northern Ireland tried to do something similar after 2016, but then power sharing broke down there. Um, but Claire Sugden, who was Justice Minister, talked about the experiments they'd, or the innovations they'd try to introduce there. So there are some, I think, lessons that, that can be learned from, from the devolved level. Um, on the other question there, I mean, so, as I said, I mean, it was a mixed picture, but yeah, you did have quite a lot of people with not only no prior ministerial experience, no, no prior political experience even, or, or, or little, um, little get ending up in executive positions. Um, whether that meant they performed any worse than UK ministers, I'm not sure I would say we could, we, we, we could make a clear um, conclusion about that. Um, I mean, I think, Certainly a lot of them talked about finding the, the volume of information, the volume of people uh, wanting to meet with them, wanting to fill up their diary as quite um, daunting early on. I don't think that's particularly different to what happens at Westminster necessarily. Um, and there are also some quite interesting stories just about that feeling of suddenly being responsible for a huge public you know, public services from the moment you, you step into office. So, I mean, Andy, I'll just leave you with one um, example. Andy Kerr, who was minister in the first Labour government in Labour Lib Dem coalition in Scotland, talked about, I remember going up to St Andrew's House, the, the departmental building. I'd been health minister for about three hours and in the news, it was new health minister in crisis. <laughs> I'm like, what? effing crisis <laughs> and he did use that word in the interview but it was that yeah immediately wow you're the person in the spotlight you're the person being held to account no matter whether you've had anything to do with the problem or not yeah brilliant i'm sure there are plenty of ministers from all around the world who could tell similar stories hans what about this question about cross-cutting issues and things that try yeah. to break down silos or and of course this is from a very different context but mm. i mean uh, Georgia is interesting because of precisely because of these incredibly fast reforms that turned a country that didn't have the confidence it could actually do things into something where the civil service and the state really performed. I do think you need consensus, and in often, often in a society, and often the, the, the challenge about getting things done is that simply there isn't the consensus necessarily in society, and that ends up I think filtering, of course, into government. But in Georgia, there's one interview brought this out, I think, in an interesting way, that a minister of finance had said that he had been given the mandate, no cues. And it was as simple as that, that the president had said that who wanted reforms, he didn't want citizens to have to queue. 
And when he kind of turned on the TV and he saw that there was a problem uh, that, and for some reason people were queuing around banks just in order to get some kind of transaction done, he knew he needed, that was the crisis that he responded to. And the interesting thing in that was that the teams were very inexperienced. They didn't, they essentially replaced all the civil servants and brought new people in. And with that, it, it was really possible. But I do think you need that kind of societal consensus. You want to move away from something. You need a very, very clear vision. And then you need to empower people to actually execute and get things done. And of course, you, don't, you often don't have that in a democratic system because the, the views still remain divided. Brilliant. Um, Casper, what are your views? What's the Dutch experience of managing problems that cut across different ministries and departments and ministers? Yeah, this also in the Netherlands is a persistent critique on the functioning of, uh, of central government. Um, in, uh, in various um, uh, governments, uh, attempts have been made to, to break through the barriers of, uh, of departmentalization. We see that uh, in the Netherlands, actually, the departments and the division of the portfolios across departments is a relatively stable uh, uh, situation. But in, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in one government in the second half of the 2000s, there was a very deliberate attempt by creating something that we called program ministers uh, to pick two uh, very strong political priorities of that coalition government, namely um, youth and families as one, mm -hmm. and the other one deprived neighborhoods. So um, uh, two different program ministries were created. So for instance, for youth and family, it was a triangle between the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Affairs, and Ministry of Health, where civil servants were drawn from and created sort of project directorates with one um, a minister uh, heading that. And the other one was about deprived neighborhoods. So it was also different departments lending people to that program ministry. And um, the idea behind that was actually very, uh, uh, very good and very strong. But research also indicated that it basically took a year and a half or two to get the organization running uh, in the way it was uh, intended to do. So you lose a lot of time on that. And uh, uh, once they got started and once they got up to speed, of course, the, the uh, government uh, almost became to an, uh, it came to an end. And the next government saw that initiative as something very much uh, a political priority with the, with the fingerprints of the previous government all over it. So anything that may have been good about that was actually discredited by the next government because they wanted to do it their way and they wanted to, to have their own political priorities. Uh, and another uh, strategy that was followed that I think is much more lasting is to look at not so much the political level where the ministers are active, but to try and um, uh, take down barriers between the different departments in terms of um, sort of the uh, uh, the managerial side. So uh, make sure that people have one card to access all ministries, make sure there is more mobility among civil servants from one department to uh, another uh, at the highest level, but also at policy advisory level and so forth. So in sort of that um, more uh, managerial public service uh, uh, level, a lot of steps have been uh, been taken. Uh, things that are that may look symbolic, but sort of one logo for uh, 
uh, that is that is tweaked for every ministry, but looks very much the same for all of uh, central government. Those initiatives have been taken to finally do something about that persistent uh, um, problem of of silos. But truth be told, we haven't found the holy grail either in our country yet. Brilliant. Well, that is a really interesting overview. Uh, thank you, because it's something we're thinking about here as well, isn't it, Kath? I don't know if you want to add anything on. Yeah, I mean, I think Casper's final point that no one's really found the magic holy grail is uh, a very good one. And I'm afraid that is the sort of main answer from having looked around lots of different countries. But there's different elements that have come out of, of all of this. I mean, the point about sort of, you know, you can call them programme ministries, whatever. We're talking about learning from different governments around the UK and around the world. There's actually another form that we never really learn from, which is local governments. Mm -hmm. And one of the sort of zeitgeist things at the moment, if you listen to Keir Starmer, is mission-based government, which is something that Camden Council are pushing in particular as a, a sort of different way of, of joining up. And you could look at New Zealand, who have the beehive where they get all ministers together in one place, somewhat similar or a different variation on the, the approach that Scotland has, has taken uh, to sort of organising the different themes of government. And you can go back to 1918 and look at the Haldane report that said, why do we organise our ministries in the way that they did? But that's a whole big constitutional, legal and bureaucratic uh, solution to a problem that can sometimes be quite human. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is, yes, about different timelines, different priorities, different incentives. And it can happen within departments you know, where different policy teams have different incentives or different perspectives to try and bring out. So to bring it full circle back to Ministers Reflect, one of the extraordinary things that comes out again and again is ministers talking about the time at which ministers talking to each other and working well as a team helped resolve some of those mm. issues of realising that, you know, there were different elements of the same. It was some safeguarding report that uh, various different parts of Whitehall were, were working on and realising that actually there was a way through of joining it up if they just all spoke to each other and sort of almost circumvented um, the civil service sort of hierarchical up and down approach to, to doing that. Similarly, you know, they've talked about incentivising civil service teams to try and, and work more effectively together. And, and a lot of these are human elements. And again, back to the Minister's Reflect, that's one of the values of it, is kind of that iterative learning from each other of ways of working so that it doesn't take you three or four years before you realise that maybe you should just get on the phone to somebody or maybe you should just work in a more positive way with this group or that group or whatever. Um, and that is something that I hope that Ministers Reflect will Good help to start foster more in our um, body politic. Brilliant. Well... As you've brought it so smoothly back to Ministers Reflect, I want to mm. talk a little bit about the process of doing these interviews a bit more. So someone online has asked um, anonymously, across countries, did you find ministers ready to speak with the same level of candour as in Ministers Reflect? What was critical for you to make sure people open up and are not fearful to share or are not just justifying their own work? And Hans, you mentioned at the beginning that in your conversations with Georgian politicians, you'd pointed to Ministers Reflect as a kind of, you know, an example of how this worked. How... Tell us a bit more about how receptive people were to talking about their experience in government. Yeah, no, so this is a great question. So I think having the model of Ministers Reflect is great because it tells people what it could be and then you send them a link to, a minister, to an interview with a minister that they might find interesting. 
So that really helps. The second thing, I think the small tweaks of what you have in there are really important. And among that is they have the last edit. And you re keep reassuring them mm -hmm. of that. They have sometimes taken the most interesting flavor out of the mm -hmm. interview where they had some great quote that was maybe even the English wasn't entirely right because we do them in English, but, but it was a great quote. And so sometimes one goes back and forth a little bit and says, well, but that was really quite nice. But the, uh, because when they're knowing people well, one has the eye level and can do that. But I think that that's very, very important. I think in other settings, and that also matters, and it's very different from the British context, uh, put bluntly, we cannot be entirely sure in our context that if a minister has, a deputy minister has misbehaved and has a fair amount of unexplained wealth that we do not know about, we, we can absolutely, well, we cannot assume that these people will be prosecuted. So we actually have to do a lot of pre-selection in order to make sure and kind of background asking about what has that person really done in office. So there's a lot of force field, no force field is too much, but a kind of trying to get a sense with the people uh, that I think is important and that I should also emphasize the one, one difference. I think the Institute for Government, as far as I've worked a fair amount with think tanks across context, it is a unique institution. I don't know of a quite similar one. There might be in some other contexts. But what we decided to do, I used to work in a research institution, but I, I deliberately connected that to a university effort because I felt that that was one of the greatest learning exercises for master students to be involved in the interviews. And it would also be long-term sustainable without project funding. And so much other policy research work across the world ends up being highly projectized. And when the funding stops, everything falls apart. There are efforts by Gates and Hewlett, 200 million into think tank funding across the world. The, fun the moment the funding ended, there isn't even a website left of mm -hmm. something that was three digit bill a million effort. And so I think, how can I say, thinking adaptively mm -hmm. about how you transfer that, but at the same time taking the ministers reflect as a kind of framework. Uh, and also, how can I say, I mean, doing that sounds maybe a bit grand, but doing justice to the effort, for example, not making the thinking carefully about how not to glorify someone's credit, that uh, someone's performance that doesn't actually deserve that. Mm. I think that's very, very important. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I'm going to come to Casper and then I'll come back here. But so, Casper, tell us how it goes in, in the Netherlands. Are people happy to chat? And also, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about, as we mentioned at the beginning, this is supported by and I think hosted on a website by the, the Ministry of Home Affairs in. The Netherlands. Tell us what their involvement is. Are they happy to help? Yes, very. So uh, uh, this project uh, is uh, it's it's executed, so to say, by people not associated with the uh, the ministry. So the people that do the interviews are independent externals, mostly uh, mostly academics. But all of the technical side, the logistics side. Uh, doing the website, uh, doing the editing and so forth. Uh, that is done uh, by the people at the ministry and that works, uh, uh, that combination works really, really well because it's not too much work for the people who do the interviews and it's made sure that it's that it looks very uh, professional and it's very, uh, 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 in its form, very high quality. Um, and also, I mean, what we, what we experience is that people are very happy to uh, uh, to chat, particularly in the second round when they have heard about the first round. And sometimes they're a little bit 
offended that they weren't part of the first batch, so to say. So they feel it's about time that they were finally asked to tell their story. Um, and what, what I think works really well is that we indicate to them that what we're interested in is hearing the history from their point of view, from their experience and in their words, so to say. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, most of the events that we talk about, they are documented by journalists or by historians or about by others. But it's really interesting for us to hear that from how they as a person lived those moments. And sometimes that sheds new light on on crisis or incidents or so when they say, well, this is what I knew at that moment, or uh, this person intervened like that, and that changed the story for us. Those kind of things that we didn't know before. And it's true that some of the respondents um, uh, use it uh, as sort of self-justification, but also the opposite is true. We've also had interviews where people really are uh, willing to reflect or where people are actually uh, saying, this is what we did then, but looking back now, it wasn't it wasn't the smart decision. Or if we had known what this would cause, we, should, we would have done something very different. Or this was something where we had a not so good judgment, which made us lose the next elections or something like that. So there are people who are also using this and, and and my feeling with those conversations is that sometimes it wasn't really planned, but also during the conversation, people start seeing things maybe different from how they've always said it or how they've always seen it. So you actually see something sometimes also um, uh, uh, change a little bit uh, uh, in their perspective. And that's really, uh, that's really nice. Brilliant. Thank you benefit of having these conversations, I guess. Uh, I'm aware of time, so I'm going to come quickly to my colleagues for sort of final reflections on all of this, but particularly about how do we get people to take part in these things? Yes, uh, I will be rapid then. Um, I mean, there's a prior process, which actually is similar to what um, Catherine Hans were just talking about, where we have to think who to interview, because there are hundreds of former ministers. So it's a, a regular process that Tim, I and the team go through of listing ministers who've recently left government and deciding which of them we want to approach. And the other thing is, going to that who point, we actually try to get a balance. We don't just go for the big names. We are often looking for people who are junior ministers who played a key role. Uh, one of my favourite sort of tranches of our, our interviews are Lords Ministers who've often come from a uh, private sector background um, because their reflections on government are so illuminating because... Uh, you know, similar to what you were saying, Hans, about sort of technocratic background, they, uh, you know, they've never encountered this before, so they give a very different thing. Uh, yes, we go through a process, we do a transcript, um, which we allow them to edit. We very rarely get any significant loss, occasionally we do. There was one point where we had to call a lawyer in to check they weren't libeling somebody. Mm. Um, but one of the bigger problems is more punctuation. Some ministers can speak in complete sentences, some cannot. Um, but we also do try and frame it around advice. So almost always our final question is, what advice would you give to somebody becoming a minister for the first time? And that really, 
you know, it's how we, we preface the, the purpose of the interview and it really helps sort of bring it home to them why they've done it and why it's valuable. And it, it is amazing. We're often very cynical about our politicians, but it is amazing how many of them are motivated to do these purely to try and help their successors do the job better. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. And Akash? Yeah, I mean, by the time we, we started the devolved uh, ministers reflect, we, we had the established model and that obviously really helped. We could, we could point to the very senior cabinet ministers and others who'd already taken part in, in the process. We could show how it would look on the website. We could show the, the media coverage it was getting and um, uh, that all helped a lot. We also did, um, because we, we started at the top, I mentioned before with the first ministers, we had established relationships with Lord McConnell from Scotland, Carwin Jones, both of them had done public events here. Um, and once we got them secured, I think that became easier to get party colleagues. Was a bit harder in Northern Ireland initially, but in the second wave, we did a lot more Northern Ireland interviews, and that was really helped by colleagues of ours, Jill and Jess Sargent, having done a big project of work on, on government in Northern Ireland and, and having built those relationships, basically. I mean, the other thing I would just say finally is, um, ultimately, I think most people I've, I've done the interviews with what, as soon as they get into it, they really enjoy it. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. it's cathartic, for sure, for a lot of them. Um, and it's an opportunity to get their story and their side of often quite contentious stories on record, not least in many of these cases, the side we haven't had a chance to talk about um, today, but the relationship with, with Westminster mm. and, and UK yeah. ministers. Lots and lots of juicy material in, in our interviews about how frustrating and difficult that has been. And yeah, I think absolutely that's been something where, where, where people really have appreciated the chance to uh, shed light on how they see that relationship working and how UK government, if it understood devolution better in, in many cases, um, might be doing itself a favour. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I won't get into examples because we don't have time, but sometimes, you know, ministers just failing to understand the contours of the devolution settlement undermine their own policy objectives because they don't know which powers they hold and which powers devolved ministers hold as well. So I think it's also been seen as part of that educational experience of UK government as well. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Thank you. I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. As you say, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, Hans's interviews are available online, and as you said, they're in English. Casper's are available online, they're in Dutch. Um, but, you know, Google Translate works wonders nowadays. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Australia and Singapore are hopefully going to be doing something similar. If you're watching online from a different government around the world and would want to do something similar, let us know. We'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, for those here, uh, we will have another 15-minute break, and then our final panel of the day uh, is talking about how the role of minister has changed in, a re in recent years and what it means to do it well. So please do join us then. In the meantime, thank you to the panel. <laughs>